Kids, you are, you are free to go to your classes if you haven't left already. <clears throat> so uh, I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. And I uh, want to say thank you to the fellowship for letting me take a couple weeks off, the past three weeks. And we've had a, a variety of guest speakers come in. It was really great to hear Dave Lawson, one of our uh, ministers in the San Fernando Valley Church, came out and preached. And then after that, uh, we had Prakash from India, all the way from Calcutta, India, here to preach. And he did a great job. And of course, last week, Raphael came and uh, filled in for me while I got a much needed break. But we're back now, and I'm back now, and I'm right back into the series, Jeremiah, the Branch of an Almond Tree, right back into our theme, our theme of cringeworthy things that God made Jeremiah do. And today, we're going to learn about a time when God made Jeremiah buy a field. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever regretted a purchase? So I bought a van many years ago. It was the first minivan. We had a, a young child and we thought, hey, time to get a van. We're going to have our family. And so I went out and I got this used van and almost instantly I regretted buying this used van. I won't say the make or the model, but it was not a well-made van. And uh, right away, it was just problem after problem. Catalytic converters, tune-ups, uh, air conditioning, water systems. I mean, just one after the other. It just really was dead. This, this van was found on the road dead. And I won't say what maker of company that made the van, but it was literally found on the road dead. Found on the road dead. That was... My story. It was so bad that a very good friend of mine felt so bad for me that he literally gave me money to just offset the cost of this van. At the end of the day, there was no saving it because it was found on the road dead. <laughs> and so we had to just say goodbye to that van. Instant, instant regret. We're going to look at a purchase today that God made Jeremiah make that on the surface might not seem so cringeworthy, but... But I, I got to think that shortly after he bought this, this property, Jeremiah might, might have wished that he had a friend like I did who was willing to maybe offset some of his losses. We're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Let's pray. God, it is so great to be back and great to be back in your word. And we love examining your word and getting to know it. And it's just so encouraging to see what uh, is in every page of the scripture, especially in Jeremiah, not a book that that we normally would want to read a lot. It's, it's hard reading and it's it, and it's it's complicated. But God, as we as we as we dig into it, there's so much there. I pray that we open up our hearts to receiving the word today. And that something today ministers to each and every one of us, myself included. It's in Jesus name, I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined to the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face, and will see him with his own eyes. 
He will take Zedekiah to Babylon where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So we enter into the story here of Jeremiah during a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. This is some 2,500, 3,000 years ago. After two previous invasions, the new nation of Babylon had finally subdued most of the Fertile Crescent. This is a, an arc of land that goes all the way from modern-day Iraq and Iran all the way north up into Syria and down into the Jordan, into Palestine, and all the way down into Egypt. It included Palestine and, and many of the nations there in that land, including the kingdom of Judah. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was allowed to keep his throne as long as he paid tribute to Babylon. But after several years, Zedekiah rebelled, he stopped making the payments, and he allied himself with Egypt and a number of the neighboring nations that had recently been conquered by Babylon. This prompted Babylon to invade the land for the third time and utterly devastated these various nations and city-states and ultimately pushed Egypt way south into Egypt and out of the promised land altogether. In 588, 89 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, as part of this third invasion and this, this uh, uh, retaking of the land and subduing this rebellion, he besieged the city of Jerusalem for 30 months. Back in those days, when, uh, when you invaded a, a nation, you, the goal was to take down their capital city. Most of the time, the capital cities were, were fortified with giant walls. Jerusalem had massive walls around it to protect it. And the way you took a city like that is you sieged it. You just basically camped around it, didn't let anything in or out, including food or water. And eventually, they would capitulate, or you might get a breach in the wall and invade. And, and this took Babylon 30 months they set up siege works and they isolated the city of Jerusalem. They, this time, were not there to install a new king. This time, they were so tired of coming back. This was the third time. They were there to just wipe the city out and take it, take, destroy it completely. Which they did eventually in 586 BC. They breached the walls. They completely destroyed the city, the temple, and they brought to an end Zedekiah's 11-year reign and the kingdom of Judah itself, carrying much of the population into captivity back into Babylon. Now, verses 1 through 5 tell us that sometime during this 30-month siege, Jeremiah was imprisoned in the royal palace for preaching that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, should surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. When you're surrounded by an enemy, the last thing you want to hear is people in your own, in your own team saying, hey, maybe we should go over to that team. That's basically what Jeremiah was trying to tell Zedekiah to do. Surrender. Verses 6 through 9 say, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. Because as nearest, uh, as nearest relative, it is your right to buy it, and do, right and duty to buy it. 
Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it was your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. So verses 6 through 9 tell us that during this siege, when, when Jeremiah was imprisoned during this 30-month siege, his cousin shows up, the son of his uncle Shalom. And he wants Jeremiah to buy his property. Apparently, Hanamel had no children. And in those days, land rights were very important and they wanted them to keep, stay in the family. And so it was usually the obligation of the closest living relative to buy the land from whatever relative didn't have any offspring to, to give it to. And that way it would stay in the, the family in general. And that's why Hananel shows up. He wants to sell his land. He's got no offspring. He feels like, hey, I want to keep this in the family. I'm going to sell this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you got to buy it. It's your right. And God tells Jeremiah, go ahead and buy it. And so Jeremiah buys it. 17 shekels of silver, maybe somewhere around, who knows? People try to figure out what this costs. I don't actually know, but the estimates I've read, anywhere from $100,000 to $400,000 in modern numbers. A shekel of silver doesn't quite add up to that amount, like in terms of value of silver, but some people, cost of inflation, etc. they try to come up with these numbers. Who knows? But the point is, Jeremiah had to pay a pretty good size, a hefty amount of money in order to buy this field. It was his duty and it was his obligation to his family to do so. Now, I don't know if you figured it out or not, but this land or this field in the town of Analoth, which was Jeremiah's hometown, it was only about three miles north of the city of Jerusalem, very close, was about to be conquered by Babylon. So at first glance, you think, well, what's so cringeworthy about buying some property and, hey, it's a whole custom in the Jewish faith and it's your obligation to do it. It should be expected. And on the surface, you would say, yeah, that's not a big deal. Go ahead and buy the property. But what if you knew that the property was going to become worthless in the very near future? What if God said to you, I want you to fork out anywhere between 100 grand and 400 grand and literally just burn it? Because it's going to be useless. Go buy something that's utterly useless. Go buy a found-on-the-road dead car and dump $100,000 into it. Just throw it away. Now we see why this is a little bit cringeworthy for Jeremiah to have to do. They were being besieged by the, the nation of Babylon, and Jeremiah knew from the prophecies that they were going to lose and that this whole land was going to be devastated and that property wasn't going to be worth very much. You know, I had an uncle growing up. He lived with us for a short time, passed away many years ago. But he used to say to me, when something would go wrong, into every life, a little rain must fall. Now, when I was a young kid, I'd hear that and I didn't quite understand it. And then I got older and I started to realize what he meant. What he meant was, is that everybody is going to experience difficult times in life. Have you not experienced difficult times in your life? Even as a young child, you might have a difficult time. The magnitude changes as you get older. 
But we all go through difficult times in life. And that is true even of believers. Just because you believe in God does not mean you will escape difficult times in life. I have seen many believers shipwreck their faith because they naively thought that their faith was going to make their life easier. And when it didn't, they threw in the towel. Now, before we get in to the whole story of Jeremiah buying this plot of land that is probably going to be worthless in the near future, I want to spend some time and I want to look at what was going on in Jerusalem and in Jeremiah's life during these 30 months of this, during this 30 month siege by Babylon of the city of Jerusalem. Because his experience in those 30 months is a great reminder that not only are the faithful subject to trouble in this life, they want you to hear this, but sometimes the very faith that they profess can be the source of that trouble. So we're going to jump over to Jeremiah chapter 37. 37 and 38 are actually not in chronological order. They actually take place before chapter 32. They give us a little bit of context to what was going on before Jeremiah got arrested and before his cousin showed up to sell him this field. Verse 3, Jeremiah chapter 37. King Zedekiah, however, sent Jehuchal, son of Shelmiah, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, to Jeremiah, the prophet, with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land to Egypt. Now, these verses tell us that sometime early on in the siege of Jerusalem, Babylon had showed up because, remember, Egypt and Judah and several other nation states in the area had allied themselves with each other. And their goal was to was to repel the Babylonians out of Palestine and push them out of that part of the Fertile Crescent. Well, when Babylon came to retaliate and to put those rebellions down, Judah ended up surrounded by the Babylonian army and a siege work was built. Well, Egypt during this time began to march into the land in support of Judah and some of the other cities. Well, Egypt was really the most dominant force outside of Babylon fighting for control of this land. The other nations were much smaller. And so this got the Babylonian army, army's attention and Nebuchadnezzar ordered them to withdraw from the siege and head over and deal with the Egyptian incursion into the land. Now, as you might imagine, King Zedekiah is thinking to himself, 
hey, the army left. The siege works are gone. Is this a sign? Is God going to deliver us? Have we been saved? Jeremiah, tell me what God says to you. Jeremiah comes back and he says, uh, don't get your hopes up. Egypt's going to be repelled back into Egypt by Babylon, and they're going to come back, and they're going to besiege this city. He adds in verses 8, Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it, burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking, the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. It was an emphatic, no, you're not winning. You're not getting out of this. I know that they left, but they're coming back. And even if they come back wounded and all beat up, they're still going to win. And they're going to destroy this city. There's nothing, Zedekiah, you can do about it. Not only are believers subject to the same troubles in life that non-believers are subject to, but sometimes the very faith we profess can be the source of some of those troubles. The whole reason why Jeremiah ended up in prison to begin with is because he told King Zedekiah what he didn't want to hear. He wouldn't soften the message God had given him. He went and told the man what God had told him. He was faithful to the message. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for Jeremiah. I mean, maybe he had his hopes up. Hey, we're going to be saved. God says, no. And go tell the king, no. It's for sure going to happen. They're going to come back and they're going to destroy the city, the nation. Everything's going to be wiped out. Nothing's going to be left. That must have been a difficult conference call for Jeremiah. You ever had one of those calls? You know, I'd like to think that my faith would keep me out of trouble. And for the most part, it does. But sometimes it gets me into trouble. Years ago, I went back and I got my master's. And I, early on in, in my master's program, we had a class. It was in the first week or two of school. And we had an assignment and we had a discussion and we were to break out into discussion groups. And one of the fellow students figured out that I was a minister and began asking me my views of homosexuality. Now, this was not a religious school. And they would not stop asking me. I tried on many occasions to redirect the question. I knew that this person had a relative who was near and dear to them who was gay. And so I kept saying, you know, 
this class is not really about that. Maybe this isn't what the point of this discussion group is. Really don't want to answer that question right now. Let's stay focused on what we're supposed to be focused on right now. And several times I kept trying to redirect and bring us back to the purpose of the class, but the person kept persisting. And finally, I got to the point to where I was kind of in a corner and I kind of had to just come out with it. And so I said, look, the scriptures are pretty clear on it. I was very kind. I was very gentle. I had no intention to upset them. But I said, look, the Bible says that it's not in line with God's will for people's lives. Instantly, they burst into tears, became angry, stormed out and went straight to the administration and told them that I had very negative views regarding homosexuality. I found myself called into meetings with the administrators of the school to answer for what I had said. Fortunately, because I had like five times said, we shouldn't probably talk about this, it's not really the subject, the class was on something else, I really don't wanna do this, the administration understood my predicament and they were willing to say, hey, okay, we understand, and nothing further really happened, but it put me in a really negative light at the very beginning of a two years master program with a cohort of about 45 people. Word got out. The point is, it was my faith that got me into trouble. It was my belief in God and His Word that was not appreciated by many in the program. And it became a point of contention between me and them. And it wasn't what I was there for. I went there to get an education. And I found myself in this predicament that sort of lingered for quite some time. Are you willing to get into trouble for your faith? Our campus kids are down in San Diego. They had a retreat this weekend. That's why many of them are not here. But whatever age you are, wherever you are at in life, are you willing to deal with the resistance that comes to your faith? Because it's going to happen. If you take a stand for your faith, you will, it is a guarantee, receive opposition to your, to your stand. Maybe a better question is when was the last time your faith got you into trouble? Have you been living in such a way where your faith is evident to all and it is, it is bumping into people? and rubbing people the wrong way, and are they pushing back on you? Verse 11. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the capital of the guard, whose name was Erijah, son of Shemaiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, you are deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I'm not deserting to the Babylonians. 
But Elijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, which they had made into a prison. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. So after Ze uh, Jeremiah meets with Zedekiah and he gives him the bad news. The siege is not lifted. They're coming back. Jeremiah uses the opportunity of, this, of the lull in the fighting to try to head back home to his hometown of Analeth, just a couple miles away, as we've already said. Now, for 40 years, this is at the end of Jeremiah's life, towards the end of his life, for 40 years, Jeremiah had preached about the fall of Judah and Jerusalem. And now that it was at hand, <coughs> he most likely thought it was the end of him as well. He probably thought, well, we're all going down. I'm going to go down with the ship. And so he went home to just sort of set his affairs in order. Those of you that have lost loved ones, you know what that is like, how you need to go and sort of take care of the affairs. Well, Jeremiah had the opportunity to sort of settle his affairs before his demise. But as he's trying to leave the city, he gets arrested. And he's accused of desertion, he's beaten, and he's thrown into a dungeon for what would turn out to be several weeks or even months. You know, my uncle had that saying, into every life a little rain must fall. I think if we were to ask Jeremiah what he would say, he would probably say, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> I mean, things have gone from bad to worse for Jeremiah. Not only does he believe that this is the end, he's now considered a traitor. And for all he knows, he's going to spend out the rest of his days in a dark dungeon buried somewhere in the city of Jerusalem waiting for the Babylonians to come in and just kill him there. Not only does your faith get you into trouble sometimes, it sometimes makes things go from bad to worse. You're saying right now, why are you telling me this? I'm trying to believe in God. You're making this very hard to want to do it. <laughs> it's the truth. I know many of you were friends. We've been around each other many years. I've seen all of us go through times that went from bad to worse. One phone call that was pretty bad turned into two others that were much worse. One doctor's report, one week was fine, the next week it was questionable, and then you get the final report, and it's cancer. Or you have a, a child who you think is going to be fine, and you're raising, and then they turn out to be sick and disabled. And it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it, sometimes? I don't know if you've been following current affairs. I try not to because I try to maintain a decent level of faith. And the more, I, the more I follow what's going on in the world, the less faith I get. But there's a situation happening in Texas with a dad. He has a, he's a divorced father of two twin boys. Have you heard about this? Yeah. 
The ex-wife wants to transition one of the boys, seven years old, into a girl. The dad objected, and he got his rights removed. The kids, the mother now has full custody. All he can do is Skype his two boys, and when he Skypes them, one of them is dressed in full girl attire, makeup, and everything. And there's nothing he can do about it. And then she started to want to give him hormone-blocking therapy so that he would never go through puberty and fulfill the natural order of turning into a young man. At seven years old, the father objected. And as far as I know where it stands right now, the courts have taken the matter over. I don't know the latest, but what I do know is now there's a gag order on the father. I don't know what the father's beliefs are, but I know that he wants to raise his sons to be sons, to be young men. And because he took a stand, he got them removed. And then as he continued to take the stand, now there's a gag order. It went from bad to worse. Is there something in your life right now that's going from bad to worse? Is your marriage gotten more difficult? Has your health taken a downturn? Are you not seeing any hope for the future for your children or for your, 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 your career path, whatever the case may be? We all experience this, don't we? And because we hold to our faith, it doesn't alleviate the problem. Sometimes it makes it worse. I mean, Jeremiah was just leaving to go home and settle his affairs, and he gets accused of being a, a, a deserter and thrown into a dungeon. What do you do when things go from bad to worse? We're going to see in a moment that Jeremiah remained faithful. Even as he sat in a dark dungeon. Verse 17, then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. <laughs> Just keeps going. Then Jeremiah said to the king Zedekiah, what crime have I committed against you or your attendants or to this people that you've put me into prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you that Babylon will not attack you or this land? But now, my lord, the king, please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, or I will die there. The dungeon was not a good place. He really didn't want to be there anymore. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given a loaf of bread from one of the street, from, from the street of bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. So some good news, finally, for Jeremiah. He's in the dungeon. King Zedekiah is still trying to figure out what's going on. My guess is, is Babylon's little, uh, when they left the siege and they dealt with Egypt, they were probably on their way back. And Zedekiah started seeing them come back, and he was like, go get Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah, what does this mean? What does Jeremiah say? It means the same thing I've been telling you for 40 years. They're going to conquer the city, and we're all going to get taken away into captivity. Again, he remains faithful to the message of God even after things have gone from bad to worse because of his faith. Verse 
His unwillingness to compromise and to say something other than what God's will was. Jeremiah continued to act in faith. How do you act when things go from bad to worse? At any given point, in a group of people this size, there are people going through difficult times, and then there are people who are going through more difficult times. And my challenge to you is simple. Stay the course. Keep on keeping on. Put one foot in front of the other. Take one day at a time. Embrace the suck. Keep coming back. Never give up and remain faithful to God. With nothing left to lose, Jeremiah takes a chance on maybe he can get out of the dungeon. Zedekiah was probably obviously upset. Probably not thinking very smart, wisely. Zedekiah was the king of flip-flopping. And so Jeremiah takes a chance. Hey, I know this is all bad there, but can I just be imprisoned in the courtyard a little longer? I do not want to go back to the dungeon. And finally, he gets a little bit of hope, a little bit of good news. The king says, fine, you can stay here in the courtyard under house arrest in the palace. Finally, things had gotten bad, then they got worse, and now they're looking up. He's not going to die in a dark dungeon in some buried somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. He's probably just going to die in the courtyard of the palace. Much better. Much better place to die. Or so he thought. Chapter 38, verse 1. Sheftiah, son of Matan, Geldaliah, son of Pashur, Jehuchal, son of Shelmiah, and Pashur, son of Malkijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They, they will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. He's discouraging the soldiers who left in the city, as well as all the people. By the things he's saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. Amazing how doing the right thing can sometimes be called evil. He's in your hands, King Zedekiah said. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah, put him into a cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. I mean, things were looking up just a minute ago. But guess what happens? This private meeting he had with Zedekiah, word got out. And some of the other officials heard that, that Jeremiah was still preaching, hey, surrender, turn over, turn yourselves over, head over to the Babylonians, you're going to live, just give this fight up. And instead of just leaving him as a deserter, now they're calling him a traitor. He's discouraging the troops. He's discouraging the people. This guy's a traitor. He's collaborating with the enemy. So they tell the king, and the king goes, hey, do what you want. King flip-flopper. 
He gives Jeremiah to them, and they put him into a cistern where he sinks into the mud and is going to basically starve to death before the Babylonian army can come in and kill him. You know, when it rains, it pours. And when it pours, you better be prepared for floods. And that's what happened to Jeremiah here. It just flooded him. Life overwhelmed him. I love the picture of the cistern. It's empty, but it should have been full of water. Obviously, there was a siege going on. There wasn't much water. But what a picture of someone just being drowned in their troubles. Have you ever been drowned in your troubles? Have you ever been brought to that point where you can't go on anymore? You're just stuck in the mud and you're going to sit there until you die because there's nothing you can do. And remember, this is all happening because Jeremiah is just trying to do what God told him to do. It went bad and then it went worse and now it's overwhelming. You know, I'm not a prophet, but I don't know if you've ever noticed, is it me or is the world getting more hostile? Yeah. Hostility towards Christianity is increasing. At some point, it might just sweep many of us away. Are you ready if the waters rise? Let me suggest something. If you're here and you're not sure, let me suggest that you figure out an emergency escape plan. Admit you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Believe that Jesus is Lord and covenant with Him at baptism. It may not save you from your current troubles, but it will save your soul. I don't know when your time will come, but I do know that you've got to be ready when it does. For those of us who have our plan in place, we've done the ABCs. What about the people in your oikos? The people who are sitting on the front row of your life, they're watching your life as we're reading the book of Jeremiah and watching his. They're looking at you. You are a living Bible to them. Are you preparing them? Have you even identified who they are? Do you know who the people God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life? Are you aware of who they are and have you written their names down on paper? Are you praying for them on a daily basis? Are you investing in them regularly? Are you inviting them frequently to church and into your relationship with God? Are you preparing yourself to prepare them? Or are you just going to cling to your little dinghy and float around in the ocean all by yourself and wait for God to rescue you and you alone. I can't imagine 
Jeremiah going through what he went through without being prepared for the water to rise. I don't know what he was thinking in that cistern, but everything in the story of Jeremiah tells me that he never stopped being faithful. All of this was happening to him in a period of about 30 months while the city was surrounded by the Babylonians. I mean, what luck. He started out a free guy. And here he is up to his neck in mud, waiting to starve to death. There's no way he could have endured this and been faithful to God without having his plan in place. Do you have yours? Verse 7. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. And while the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord king, <coughs> these men have acted wickedly in all that they've done to Jeremiah the prophet. They've thrown him into a cistern. Well, he'll starve to death. When, well, he'll starve to death when there's no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abel-Medic, the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah out of the prophet, of the, uh, the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Verse 14, then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and had him brought to the third entrance to the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said. Do not hide anything from me. Verse 17, then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says, if you surrender to the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape, you yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who've gone over to the Babylonians for the Babylonians uh, may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. Verse 28, and Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the, God, uh, of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. It's mind boggling to me, but this is like the fourth time he goes to the king and says, just surrender, not to mention the 40 years of preaching before that about surrender. He's got mud up to here. He's talking to the king. I don't know if they brought him right out. He's all muddy standing there. Like, are you going to change your mind now, Jeremiah? No. I'm going to keep telling you what God tells me to tell you. Sometimes we got to just keep repeating the message to the people in our life. We can't stop. We can't ever give up. I mean, I guess things got better. He got rescued. He's no longer in the cistern. He's back on house arrest in the courtyard of the palace. But I want you to notice what King Zedekiah does. Who knows how many times he's heard this, and he keeps flip-flopping back and forth what to do. We get a little glimpse into this king, right? He's fearful. Jeremiah's telling him, look, just surrender, man. Go on over. Just take your lumps. Get this out of the way. No need to keep fighting. God's going to take care of it. Just surrender. And he says, I'm afraid of the Jews who'd already gone over. What he was afraid of was previous deserters who had gone over, probably because they believed Jeremiah. And they realized, oh, this isn't going to work. And so they left. And now they're with the Babylonians. And, and the king's afraid that the Babylonians are going to give them to them and they're going to beat him up for all the trouble he caused. 
That's why he won't go. He's afraid. Com contrast that to Jeremiah. These past 30 months. Free man, arrested, accused of desertion, thrown in a dungeon, yanked back out, put on prison in the, in the, gar in the courtyard, tries to go home to settle his affairs, gets arrested again, accused of collaboration, thrown into a cistern where he's going to starve to death, finally gets pulled out, tells the king again, hey, just surrender. I mean, here's Jeremiah who should be afraid, but he's the one telling the king what the king needs to hear. And he's the one going through all the troubles, and the king's over here afraid. And so, this is where we pick up chapter 32, where Jeremiah <laughs> is under arrest in the courtyard of the palace, and his cousin shows up and says, buy my field. All this has gone in before that request shows up. Now, we don't have time to get into the request today. That'll be part two. We'll talk about it next Sunday, and we'll get into the whole idea of what the field was all about and what all that meant to Jeremiah and why God told him to do it. It's an incredible story, but I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts before we go today. Number one, every believer will experience difficult times in this life. Number two, sometimes our faith can be the source of those troubles. Number three, don't be surprised if things go from bad to worse. Number four, when they do, stay the course. And number five, be prepared for the worst. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close out with a word of prayer and you will be dismissed. <laughs>